control of Congress is still up for grabs. Votes still being counted in several close races in the House and Senate. Political experts believe Republicans will control the House. But control of the Senate may not be known for several weeks. It seems like it's all coming down to these two, three states essentially, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia. We still have, as we did two years ago, uncertainty about two very important states in American politics, Arizona and Nevada. Here's what we do know. While the press and the pundits are predicting a giant red wave, uh, it didn't happen. No red wave. I mean, given the scope of what the GOP had, I mean, it Think about in, in their favor. Definitely not a Republican wave, that's for darn sure. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how was your election day? It was good. Stayed up, had a spicy margarita with my dad and watched the elections come in. How was yours? You Did were your at the dad office. get spicy about the results? No, he went to bed before it was enough space to even really digest at that point. And so did I actually. Yeah. But um yeah, he was he was upset about Zeldin's loss though. Mm-hmm. I think that was the the one that we were kind of keeping our eye on. But it's, it's funny you talk about Zeldin. I, I went to the Bills Jets game over the weekend and I was with my dad in the parking lot of MetLife. And I haven't talked about this on the show, but my dad had flirted with running for state senate in New York back in the spring and he was talking to the party and all that and for long time listeners will know my dad is a republican like a pretty MAGA republican and i thought he just never followed through but we're sitting in the parking lot this is a sunday before the election and he says to me he's like hey i think zeldin's doing really well i think he could pull me over the top i was like what do you mean pull you over the top and he was like yeah i'm on the ballot still i'm the nominee for the republican party for state senate in new york Mm -hmm. and so i texted our producer here Lucy, who lives up in the Upper West Side, I was like, hey, can you tell me what was on your ballot? And she took a photo, sent it to me, (laughs) and it was my dad's name on her ballot. And Mm -hmm. she said, I wanted to joke about it, but I didn't want to seem like I was like stereotyping and be like a Dr. Gupta, that must be your dad. So she (laughs) she actually thought it might be my dad, but she was afraid to say something. (laughs) She thought it would would seem like she was saying, oh, all the Guptas are related, but Uh it turns out we, we were related. And how did he do? Poorly, I think we just got the returns here. Twenty-two point four percent of the vote he turned in. It, it gives you a sense of how he thought his race was going to go. That he was at the Bills game with me on a Sunday before the election. Not too many mm. persuadable voters there. Maybe not the most efficient way to campaign on the Sunday before your election. Interesting. My mom was a town councilwoman at one point. She won her election. Oh wow! Yeah. So she served out her term. Yeah, it was when I was little. I remember I hit the button in the voting machine for her when I was like four or something, and she won, but just one term, and then she was she was done with that. Yeah, it just shows you how crazy it is. You know, I'm most people who follow this podcast know I'm an Obama Democrat, so to have my dad on the ballot in my mm. borough running against somebody I actually know is really fascinating. And it's funny, the state senator he ran against, I know her, she never once texted me. I don't think she even knew it was so Everyone's my afraid because of the last name Gupta. Yeah, that, and also she probably wasn't very threatened by his mm. race. <laughs> that so, makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see what political future he has. But we have a big show coming up. I want to talk about a couple of quick things on the front end. Number one is please leave us some voicemails. We've been getting some great ones. Our voicemail number is 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. You could send us you know, different ideas you have for segments you want us to do, a follow-up on any of the segments we've done. If you want to add color to things, share your ideas. Obviously, if we get a factor on you can also do that. We love running fact checks at the end of our episodes. So that's that's our voicemail. Uh, we also have the Citizen Stewart show this past Tuesday. We had a great episode where we talked about 
you know, as we do on that podcast, a lot of kids issues, education issues. And once again, that's an opportunity for people who want to see me get hell from the left. Uh, that's that show. And so you go to the Citizen Stewart show on wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera. Um, our Spanish language equivalent show, Pulso Y Pendulo, just launched their YouTube channel, which is available under our feed. So if you know any Spanish language speakers or are one yourself and you're interested in hearing about the election results from that perspective, um, be sure to check that out. Yeah, speaking of which, we have two interviews on the back end of this episode. Given that we're a C3 nonprofit organization, we try to provide that balance, which is something we want to do anyway. And so we speak to the co-host of Pulso y Pendulo, which is Carlos Corbello, former congressman from Miami-Dade County. Very timely to have somebody like that on the Lost Debate team because he's an expert in all things Florida politics. So he's going to break down for us why Democrats underperformed, why DeSantis did really well, why Rubio did really well, and what kind of messages are resonating with the Hispanic and Latino communities in Florida and around the country. Mm -hmm. And then we talked to Tara McGowan, who's a leader of one of the biggest and most innovative Democratic super PACs. And she's, she's going to talk about why Democrats did better than expected around the country. She's going to talk about the youth vote. And then she has really interesting things to talk about tactics, like digital tactics that both parties are doing. And I asked her some questions, including like, how do you think, like rate some of the best and most effective counterparts to your organization on the Republican side? And she had some cool answers on that. But before we do any of that, Ricky, let's take a step back and talk about these election results. Give us the lay of the land. So I think the red wave turned out to not really be what it was hyped up to be, aside from a pretty decisive DeSantis victory down in Florida. But um, control of the House looks likely to go to Republicans right now. It's 207 up against 184. We're still waiting for a last couple results to come in. The Senate is still a toss up. Um, very close at the moment. We have a runoff in Georgia between Walker and Warnock, which is now going to kind of roll the ball down the road, uh, potentially a couple weeks, maybe a month or so. Um, in Nevada, we have another narrow uh, Senate race that we're watching with Cortez Masto, very narrow lead at the moment. Arizona, Mark Kelly seems to be leading Blake Masters, but we're still waiting for those last few results to come in. And so at the moment, I think it's a pretty surprising result for a lot of people who are expecting a red wave definitely um a referendum on the republican messaging going into this election definitely an interesting <laughs> outcome for sure i was expecting definitely a lot more red i would say yeah me too and, and to add a little bit of color to some of the things you talked about in nevada the senate race there and in, in trying to make sense of that this morning mm -hmm. john ralston who we had on our podcast last week has now been who everybody's watching this morning and he and dave wasserman who's like the big data guru over at the cook political report and nbc both seem to think that democrats are extremely likely to keep mm -hmm. uh, the nevada senate seat so if you if we assume that arizona is leaning the same way it could be that the democrats emerge even before the referendum or the, the runoff mm -hmm. with the Senate in hand and could even net one. And my theory on this this runoff in Georgia is that with DeSantis and Trump, you know, kind of infighting and jockeying yeah. for the primary, the narrative around flawed candidates around the GOP, which is something we're going to talk about, you know, that's going to, I think, be very, uh, that'll be a tough environment for, for Walker. And then you add the improved inflation numbers from this morning. That's going to be some tailwinds for Warnock. I... A month is a long time. I'm not sure about that because I think a lot of the people who voted for the Libertarian third candidate are probably more right-leaning than left. And if that additional kind of option is taken away, I wouldn't be surprised if Walker takes 
a good portion of them because it is very, very close right now. And it's really just a matter of how those voters shake out unless something dramatic happens in terms of the candidates between now and then. Right. I have actually a, a bet we can do on this. So I think if if I'm right and, and Warnock uh, squeaks that one out, why don't we do this? Uh, you uh, have to walk around Manhattan wearing a Joe Biden hat. And I'll wear a DeSantis one if I lose. <laughs> I have a it's Make actually America, less safe for me. I have me. a Make America Hot Again hat, and it's pink. So I'll be I'll giving you that right, if, if you lose. I'm going to okay. think of somebody worse than, than maybe an AOC hat or something. Okay. But right. walking around, okay, we'll do sure. it. Maybe your dad's country club. Maybe that'll be the worst. Oh, yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll love that. Because <laughs> walking around Manhattan with a DeSantis hat might be unsafe. But a couple other results here, just to... to to throw a couple of races out there that were either surprising or indicate the environment. Laura Kelly, Democrat, won in Kansas again, which is fascinating. Tony Evers maintained his gubernatorial seat in Wisconsin, and Democrats avoided a supermajority there. Democrats protected a veto in North Carolina. They flipped the Michigan State Senate and House. They flipped the Minnesota Senate. They gained a supermajority in Vermont's House and Senate, and Dents held their majorities in the Colorado House and Senate. Maine House and Senate, New Mexico House, Washington Senate, Minnesota House. So they had a lot of great results. And then they got crushed in Florida. And in New York, they narrowly kept the, the governor's mansion. But on the congressional side, Democrats had a very disappointing night in New York on the congressional, mm -hmm. too. And a lot of people attribute that to Lee Zeldin overperforming. Uh, Certainly overperformed, yeah. especially considering that he is... Um, definitely of the more Trumpy variety of Republicans. I imagine if we had a more moderate person on the right, they could have taken this election easily. So even with those headwinds of of being Trump aligned and having a two to one voter registration shake uh, out in the beginning, I think he did do surprisingly well. He didn't, it wasn't totally in the bag for Hochul, but um, yep. certainly not to the degree that I think some people, myself included, I thought maybe he had a shot, but, right. but she decisively took that one yeah well so now it's time to to give the takes right all you know me i don't really go on twitter a lot except the past few days i've been tweeting a lot i now have to log off of it because it's destroying my brain did you buy your blue check mark yet i actually was going to do it this morning oh but, yeah but i, I don't can't know feel why special anymore i know it's good. <laughs> that, that's one of the only i i have i take like a lot of gratification in that dynamic which uh -huh. is all the people who've gotten it before i'm sure i could have figured out a way to get it but i, I don't tweet but now i've tweeted like a hundred times in the past couple of days it's where I, I kind of let my partisanness show for a few days uh -huh. and then I go back in my shell. Ricky, as we just sift through everything that's happened, what are the big things that rise to the surface for you right now? Well, I think I I consistently have been saying as someone who, who's more on the right that I don't know a ton of Republicans who are still gung-ho about Trump. Like right. I haven't for a while. I've been saying that for a long time. I think there's a narrative that he's still very much endearing to a lot of people on the right. That's never really been the case on the ground level for me around the people that I know. A lot of suspicion surrounding him. I think there was a kind of overhyped conversation about the Trump effect and that he's he will pluck people out of obscurity and, and waltz them through the election process. That's certainly not the case. There was a... Um, 20, or July 2022 poll from the New York Times that said half of Republicans were ready to leave Trump behind. And so I think we have a splintering of the Republican Party, a splintering of the messaging, really bad candidate choices on the basis of this MAGA faction. And then, of course, that's not going to be the thing that pulls 
the disaffected, independent, moderate voters that are obviously frustrated with the current administration, they're not going to go to those extreme candidates or those kind of Trump-aligned candidates. And so for me, I think it's a referendum on like this direction that Trump's going down of trying to move the party with him. And then now I think he's just burning every bridge, basically. And it's it's just become about him and not about the party. There's an it's, interesting... It's well, not going to work long term. I think we've seen that quite clearly in this election cycle. Yeah, there's an interesting take at Derek Thompson. He says that Trump provides the GOP a primary stimulus and a general election tax, meaning like yeah. if you're a candidate. And I think if one interesting way to look at this is Zeldin, right? Zeldin had a lot of things to say about crime, uh, but like there's all sorts of corruption in New York, even including around my favorite team, the Bills, the stadium that we're building that's costing taxpayers a gazillion dollars, or as we've reported when we talked to Brian Rosenthal on how expensive it is to build subways or the education mm -hmm. system, et cetera. There's so much you could talk about, but then when voters like me, who I'm primed, I was primed in that election to say, all right, if you have something to say about that, Republican or Democrat, I'd be willing to consider a Republican candidate in that, even though I mostly vote Democratic. My mom is one of those types of voters too. But the minute he, it's, you know, you see him with Trump and then you see him kind of flirting with the election denialism and things like that, it just turns off too many voters who otherwise would be receptive to that kind of message. And if you run back the tape, and you and I were talking about this offline, if he didn't have that baggage, maybe he, he yeah. could win a place like New York. He could I, be like a Charlie I Baker I really think figure. so. I mean, he didn't, he wasn't that far away even with all of that at play. I mean, I would not have been surprised if you had someone more moderate. But I mean, I'm right now I'm working on an article for the Post where I'm advocating for more open primaries because that would control for this sort of Trump effect. Um, it, like more extreme fringes of parties picking the candidates and then everyone else just being unhappy with it. I think mm -hmm. this is probably the perfect test case that these closed primaries are no longer the the method to pull people onto your side, especially in these swing areas. I mean, I think it's a pretty proven to be a completely ineffective way to pick candidates. And that's how you have like a Fetterman Oz or I, I mean, Herschel Walker, like wh who is picking these candidates aside from kind of the Trump coming down from the heavens and, and blessing them? Yeah. And, and I think they're and that's the Republican side, right? There's, a, you know, huge recriminations. We'll talk later on in the episode about some of the ideas about where to take the party. Mm -hmm. On the Democratic side, there's a lot of debate right now around, well, what happened here? Uh, there's uh, an interesting, you know, clip from that is making its way around the internet. I think on our TikTok, there's like a million people have watched this clip already. This is from Fox News, where it's basically wondering, like, how in an environment where things are going so poorly, for you know all the fundamentals you'd expect you know we already talked in the last yeah. episode on tuesday about just midterms in general are terrible for candidates and then you pile on all these other factors why is it the democrats were able to hold on and potentially even net a senate seat this is what mark Thiessen had to say so think about this we have the worst inflation in four decades the worst collapse in real wages in 40 years the worst crime wave since the 1990s the worst border crisis in u.s history we have joe biden who is the least popular president since harry truman since presidential polling happened and there wasn't a red wave that is a searing indictment of the republican party that is a searing indictment of the message that we have been sending to the voters they looked at all of that and said, and looked at the Republican alternative and said, no thanks. We talked in a previous episode about how, I, I gave my theory as to, I think the Democrats had exercised a lot of their extreme left demons, at least as it relates to the, the candidates that they picked in previous cycles. 
But if you remember what I said, I said, you know, the brand still suffered and I was worried that voters would still penalize them. But I think what wound up happening is I do think they, they exercise those demons. So in the past few years, you would have seen a lot more Mandela Barnes type candidates, the, the nominee in Wisconsin or Tina Kotek, mm-hmm. the nominee in Oregon, who we've talked about before. But in this in this cycle, you see more candidates like Wes Moore, Mark Kelly, Fetterman even, who I think is a little bit more complicated than those other two. And and even in those cases like Fetterman and Barnes, where candidates have de- flirted with either defund or have certain baggage, even if I might agree with some of their policies with voters on criminal justice issues, they, in many ways they were walking back these these positions, especially Barnes. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you compare that, for example, to some of the, the Republican candidates like Carrie Lake, for example, she was like, I'm ultra mega. And in a lot of cases, as a political strategist, you want to say, run to the left or run to the right in your primary and then tack to the center in the general election. What was puzzling about some of these Republican candidates is they didn't tack to the center, Mm -hmm. like effectively in the general elections. Yeah, I mean, I would say the unfortunate thing about this clip is I don't think that the fact that Republicans didn't run away with it means that any of the referendum that Democrats should be having right now shouldn't be happening. I mean, it's just we liked you guys slightly more, but it's still like both sides are a disaster at the moment. And I think it's it's unfortunate that there's not more of like a market pressure to actually correct for the issues that are going on right now in the current administration and with Democrats in power. And I think, you know, there's certainly much less pressure on them to address issues that are bubbling to the surface. And I mean, still inflation was the number one issue for voters going in. But I think they benefited enormously from the Dobbs decision. Even I, I thought that was in more people's rearview mirrors. But when you have situations like Lindsey Graham coming out and like just putting more more gas on the flames with that situation, mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 been in the front of people's minds for longer than I anticipated, for sure. Yeah, and I, I can, at least from my perspective, over the next few weeks, I'll be able to share more at least about what, if any, change Democrats make based on this, because I still show up to a lot of these gatherings and talk to a lot of the practitioners out there. Like one of them is actually Terry McGowan, who we speak to later in this episode. And a lot of these folks have a lot to say about things that need to be fixed. It's actually a question I ask of Tara later in this podcast about like what Democrats and progressive messaging needs to change for this. One of the challenges that Democrats have is they are a true parliamentary coalition. There's the AOCs and the Tim Ryans and the never Trumpers and all these types of people. And, and it's hard to hold that thing together. And, and, Honestly, they've done it against the odds. Uh, A couple of other quick things on this, though, um, quick takeaways before we get to some of the exit polling is the, and maybe this is a good segue to to exit polling. What's fascinating about this data, and David Shore talked a little bit about this, this who's a Democratic data person, is that this was really a persuasion election. Turnout was actually pretty disappointing for Democrats. It wasn't it wasn't the turnout that juiced Democrats here. Mm-hmm. It looks like they narrowly won independence or at least held their own with independence. And uh, this is what the Cook Political Reports, uh, Amy Walters, called meh voters, people who are kind of somewhat disapprove of Biden, somehow went to Democrats more than you'd expect. And that's mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. It also means that it's not durable, right? Democrats yeah. have to continue to make the case to those voters because they're meh, <laughs> or they're not exactly excited. So let's talk about the major issues that voters left polls saying were the most important to them. Um, as I mentioned before, inflation was number one, 31%, which that's despite the fact that the vast majority of Americans, 79%, say that it's causing their families hardship, but it wasn't 
everybody's number one issue going to the polls. Abortion was a close second at 27%, and crime, which was supposed to be one of the major issues here, was a distant third at 11%. I think that was interesting to me. Not actually that surprising in the sense that in a place like New York with a Zeldin race, that was a much more kind of clarified issue. I, I think in urban settings, that is a much more of a day-to-day occurrence for people. But I can see how across, like like in Pennsylvania, maybe that's not mm-hmm. quite the same issue, even though Oz was really running with that. Um, I think it just depends on the, the day-to-day dynamics of the place that you live in. And so I, it makes sense to me why that would be lower in people's priorities outside of an urban center like New York. And it happens to be that many of us journalists live in urban centers like New York <laughs> and think about crime a lot more than the rest of the country. Yeah, you think about suburban voters, largely are the persuadables Mm -hmm. in the era of covid a lot of them are not coming into cities Mm -hmm. we've also talked about previously on this podcast that the data is a little tricky over the past year so we're not exactly sure we know in new york for example what's going on but in a lot of places we're not getting all the data rolled up as we talked about in previous segments about all the cities in the country and i saw this firsthand as a candidate named lena hidalgo who has been the harris county judge which is basically the county executive in houston Mm -hmm. and in in my other sort of life i've been a uh, strategist for that campaign from when she first ran and then when she ran for re-election I spent a lot of time down in Houston like helping her win that seat and she faced an 8.6 million dollar effort against her largely on crime in this cycle and she you know eked it out one re-election in Texas in Harris County and this is a seat that had got, been in Republican hands before for a long time before she took it and she's young and basically what she did was she she did two things one is she ran on abortion uh, and said and painted her opponent as a, as at least as it relates to Harris County an extremist in the eyes of those voters, mm-hmm. and then she talked about all the investments she made to expand policing. Which again, like when you're talking about these candidates, like they're not doubling down. Like she did defend certain reforms to bail and things like that, but she pivoted then and talked about all right, I'm investing in law enforcement, mm-hmm. and so I think that is a recipe that could be repeated, and we won't know yet about like exactly you know into the future is crime going to continue to be a trend or not and was it even a trend in the past year we know 2020 was really bad yeah but we do know abortion ricky was it was a big issue here when you look at that that exit polling right like number two issue nationally was abortion and some exit polls in pennsylvania it was number one democrats uh, spent 500 million dollars almost uh, on abortion ads 10 to 1 spending on abortion mm-hmm. ads to republicans and you know, passed a bunch of ballot measures and, and opposed, uh, successfully opposed one in Kentucky, even mm-hmm. which is a fairly, you'd say, like a more socially conservative state than others. Abortions seem to matter. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of this just shakes out to the more specific local issues too. And I, we have such a broad national conversation. But if you live in a state where there are very like stringently pro-life politicians, then abortion probably will rise in your level of priority. And if if you're living in an urban center where there's a lot of crime, then that will rise. I mean, we saw that um, black voters were considerably more likely than white voters to say that crime was their number one issue. It was about 20%. And um, meanwhile, we have people that said that the economy or jobs was their number one issue. They went two two to one for the Republicans. And so I think it's it just really shakes out to a lot more local level issues that I think get kind of blurred over when we talk about it so nationally. Like right. I, I I mean, I I was surprised by the result in Kentucky with the abortion situation, but it does I I could kind of see 
I think that's heartening for a lot of people that voters aren't actually as hardline as people expect them to be of just pro-life, pro-choice. I mm -hmm. mean, there are countries around are the world that have a much more nuanced kind of like, this is where we draw the line and this is where the morality gets kind of gray area to us. And even a very conservative state like Kentucky, it shook out that way. Yeah, the crime stuff is fascinating because about as many voters, slightly more voters picked crime as a big issue than gun policy, but it was really close. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the black voters, 20% cited crime, 17% gun policy. Mm -hmm. So it often, when people say they care about crime, who they blame and how they interpret it is a little bit complicated too. Like some people you're living in a city and you're like, hey, like I want gun control, we don't know, right? And I yeah. think sometimes that messaging doesn't land the same way. Uh, but there's there was this fascinating when we talked about abortion in kentucky right mm -hmm. ricky there's we have this phenomenon in this country in certain states where we don't just elect leaders we sometimes just straight up vote on policy yeah there was a lot going on around the country of ballot measures a ton of ballot measures i think that's a great thing to do more of personally i'd rather have some more actual more democratic democracy. yeah like like on an issue as important as abortion. Um, so as we mentioned, Kentucky rejected an anti-abortion measure. Um, meanwhile, California, Michigan, and Vermont all moved to codify it in their state constitutions. We had a lot of drug ballot measures. Um, in Colorado, five psychedelics were de decriminalized. Um, in terms of legalizing marijuana or decriminalizing it to different degrees, Arkansas, North Dakota, and South Dakota all rejected measures, but Maryland and Missouri accepted them. Um, in Nevada, we have an open primaries ballot reform measure, which has 51.5% in favor at the moment. We're still waiting to see how that works out. I think that's a great move for more states to make. Um, so I'll be watching that and updating everyone when those results come in. Um, Nebraska overwhelmingly voted in favor of voter ID. In California, voters um, pretty resoundingly rejected Prop 30, which would have increased taxes on high income earners to subsidize electric cars. Hmm. So tons of different movement around the country, um, some interesting results. I think this is kind of a healthy thing for society to have more direct decisions being made by the populace. Well, I have a good state for you to move to then, California. Mm -hmm. You know, they do this. No, uh, they, they vote. <laughs> uh, I, I like it in theory. I think it can get a little crazy because I think in California, people I know who live in California, they, they show up and there's all these different ballot yeah. measures and it can get confusing. Sometimes you don't know what they mean. Like I Prop 30 is a good example of one that if I saw it on the ballot and I hadn't done research ahead of time, I think I would be yeah. confused as to Social what Social issues, I think, are the ones that should be on the back of ballots, like, like abortion, like drug use. I think the things that affect people day to day that are very personal that seems to me like the better thing than do you want a tax cut on this thing to subsidize this industry? Like I, I, right. I do agree that it can get too convoluted. Yeah, one thing that we'll probably report on in future episodes is that New Mexico passed a pre-K funding mm -hmm. uh, measure uh, to increase funding for pre-K and expand pre-K. We'll talk all about that. 70% in favor of that. That passed pretty easily. Yeah, that's one thing though with the ballot measures that I think we can be careful because New York this happens too is anytime there's like more, people vote for more. Just like in mm -hmm. polling, right? You ask people, should we expand this? Should we expand that? But often it's contextless. So it's like, all right, where's that money yeah. coming from? It gets a little tricky. Yeah, now, in that I case, think they it needs to be like the, like the clear moral line, like social issues that are just a matter of personal opinion, right. like drugs, abortion, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay, the youth votes. Uh, this is my Steve Buscemi, like, how do you do type moment here. Uh, mm -hmm. I would, I think we'd have you 
reading out this data, but I think, as you said this morning, you vote more like a grandma than a youth <laughs> voter. I think I'm more in touch with the youth, Ricky, uh-huh. so I'll give this data here. That uh, This is it from Target Smart, which is a, a data company that kind of rolls up uh, voting data. This is early and absentee voting. Democrats had 63% of the 18 to 29 vote, Republicans 22.8 and independents 14%, Ricky, mm-hmm. of the independents. And that, for the record, the early ballots do tend in general to move a little more Democratic. So that will probably shuffle out a little differently as we have general votes as well. Yeah, but we do have exit polling that kind of confirms that. Yeah. And what's fascinating is in some key races, it was even more like in, for instance, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, it looked like it might be 70 to 28 in favor of Fetterman. In Georgia, you had a higher turnout than the national rate among the youth vote. So they, it seems like they did play a key role here. And it, it and as Tara talks about in our later interview, there's still a lot of these Gen Zers left to hit the, the voting rolls. Yeah. And so it ends in 2012. I think there's people that are like 10 that you're counting, are Gen Z. You're counting down the days, Ricky. Yeah. <laughs> that's the world you're, you get to live in. Uh-huh. Uh, your, your fellow Gen Z is very Well, liberal. young people always tend to be more progressive. But I do think that the thing that is more interesting about my generation that breaks in the kind of pattern of you tend to be Democrat and then as people get older, more and more people yeah, you get more switch money, the registration. You get more fiscally you, conservative. You get some tax, uh, <laughs> tax invoices in the mail. Um, but I would say... The thing that is interesting to watch about my generation and the upcoming election cycles is that we're overwhelmingly more likely to be registered independents. It's twice the rate of just the general electorate. And so I think there's more, not me voters, but like people who who say, and like prove to me that I I love should- that you turned it into like a half cat and it's like a meh. Like <laughs> oh, say, nah. Yeah, you've been know. spending too much time <laughs> with your cat. But, uh, um, but I think but I think that there's an, in, an important nuance about my generation that we've grown up in such a hyper-partisan moment and that our votes, at least in terms of our party registration, we feel like they should be earned in a way that we might not be doing the down the ballot sort of uh, voting, which I think is a healthy Well, thing. yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah. Down the ballot voting, you know, so the opposite of that is what they call split ticket voting. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in some of these states, there was some very crucial split-ticking voting, which totally. shows that people aren't just mindless zombies just picking all the way yeah. down one party. Yeah. Um, in Georgia, Brian Kemp outpaced Herschel Walker by 200,000 votes. So that's a huge difference for two people that are on the same party and on the same ballot. Raphael Warnock uh, outpaced D.C. Abrams by 130,000. In Pennsylvania, Mastriano significantly underperformed Dr. Oz. Um, and Katie Hobbs has a smaller margin um, right now in the votes that we've seen tallied than Mark Kelly does. And so I think a lot of these more controversial candidates, there are people who maybe if there was a more moderate person on the right in that in that slot, they would have moved over to that side and done the down the that down the ticket vote. But I think that people are actually being very mindful, especially in these swing districts, that if somebody turn them off for one reason or another, they're not just automatically getting their vote. Right. Well, I think, yeah, and that's that's reassuring in many ways. You want people to actually be evaluating the person and not just the party. Totally. I think that's a pretty healthy thing to see that there are less partisan voters, that people are being nuanced and actually paying attention to issues and debates and 
stances and platforms, hopefully, and and being more careful and individual in how they vote. Well, and Kemp is a good example, and this is a good transition to talk about, well, where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this, but Kemp's a good example because he, he had this interesting brand, as did Raffsenberger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, where they were Republicans, and Kemp had this two-step where he was, he kind of kept Trump at a distance, but didn't really piss off the MAGA voters, but kept the sort of suburban voters. And this gets to the question of what is a winning formula in the future for Republicans, and who is the leader of the party mm-hmm. moving forward? You had DeSantis having historic numbers in Florida, yeah, and you have Trump's candidates not doing so well, and Trump is has at least signaled that he's making a big announcement next Tuesday. You are you. We talked a, a bit about this on the front end, but this is like a huge battle that's ensuing within the Republican yeah. Party between these two huge figures. I think it's become a whole lot more clear where people's kind of sentiments are. There's a lot of people changing course that were at the very least kind of leaving the door open for Trump. That's I mean, at this point, if Republicans want to be successful going forward, I think this past election cycle is a demonstration that taking this one guy's truth social suggestions probably isn't the way to go. Um, I mean, DeSantis's victory was very decisive. And I think especially in Miami-Dade County, I mean, he did well in an urban area. He did well with Hispanic voters. I I would say that he is somebody to certainly keep an eye on, especially now that even though Trump had once helped him and endorsed him, now he's Ron DeSanctimonious and mm-hmm. there's dirt that he's going to drop on him. And he did that right before he had a decisive win and Trump had many decisive losses. I think pretty much everyone is pivoting towards a different face for the Republican Party going forward. When you say everyone, this is the big question I have. Is it just the grass tops, media figures? Like I've definitely noticed a difference in tone and volume of like Ben Shapiro, National Review, Fox News, you know, your your publication in the New York Post, like the, the headline. Well, the Post DeSantis, has been um, pretty for about trump years for now. a while. Yeah. yeah. So but, I, there were people saying, oh, the, the Post just flipped. They but didn't, it, they I would didn't. say in tenor, though, like it is a pretty aggressive, like the, the volume and venom that I think we're going to see. Not We'll take the Post out of it because that's where you are, but definitely Daily Wire, definitely Fox News. And I think Fox has also been, I think there's been a creeping suspicion about Trump that now has just been just clarified. Out yeah. And it's like, okay, this is really, we're, we're gonna do a hard turn. But this is the deal, right? This is what I'm I'm very curious about is it's no longer about just those publications. There's OAN and Steve Bannon's War Room and all these places and mm-hmm. Tim Pool. And I'm like, all right, Trump is a movement figure. He has built a movement, and at least up until now, the polls show he's in pretty solid standing within the Republican mm-hmm. base. And it's as it, is DeSantis, though. Like as are the not ultra MAGA or whatever the latest pejorative is. Right. But I mean, there the, there are popular, more moderate Republicans that aren't going down that line. And I I think Ron DeSantis is appealing to people even in the MAGA faction. Well, this gets to the big question, right? Can DeSantis build? either a competing movement against Trump or co-opt the Trump movement. I think Trump's just shooting himself in the foot right now by by well, is criticizing that new? his He's always biggest, done that, right? Uh, yeah, except that he's he used to be doing it as like a figurehead of a party that he, you know, everyone is kind of doing favors to him. And now he, I think the optics of going after DeSantis with DeSanctimonious right before DeSantis was pretty much 
the the red team's only really resounding win. I I think he's he's kind of. But this is a guy who who had the video grab them by the blank video and still wound up holding on to the presidential yeah, I, race. So, but look, I I think it's I think the optics are changing. I think people are tuning him out more and more and more. And I've been saying that for a while. But. Well, I think here's here's the thing about DeSantis that if if one were to be bullish on him is that he's got a very tangible message, which is what Ben Shapiro tweeted out right after the election, which is make America Florida is essentially gonna be the DeSantis message where essentially low taxes. And you know, in his victory speech, he talked about this. We fight the woke in the legislature. We fight the woke in the schools. We fight the woke in the corporations. We will never ever surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. This is where I think he can be a movement figure. He's he's a hero to the people who felt like we went too far on COVID policies, et cetera. And I, I tweeted back at Ben Shapiro basically saying, well, if I were a Democratic strategist, which outside of this, I, I, I tend to be, I was like, well, then the Democrats should be like, make America Colorado. Because anybody who knows me knows I'm a big Polis fan, which he's like more of a libertarian. Yeah, Democrat. but that's, I don't really think that's the path that the Democratic Party is going down right now. We'll see. I don't know. I would we'll, be okay we'll with that. But, but, but okay, just so quickly on the Democratic side, because we talked about the Republicans. So obviously we're going to have that huge battle between DeSantis and Trump. Progressives like me, we're getting out the popcorn. It's going to be really interesting. On the Democratic side, Biden basically signaled he's going to run again. And that's not totally surprising. Yeah. And that essentially means that there is a bit of predictability to democratic politics moving forward, which is this kind of Biden brand of, you know, coalition politics where he has a sort of brand as a, as a centrist, which obviously I think has eroded. Has eroded a, yeah, has eroded a little bit, but I, but I think this election shows that maybe not as much as people thought. And yeah, I mean, I just think this is another like lesser of two evils sort of election where everyone was pretty unhappy with with those in power and everyone was pretty unhappy with the alternative options. And I don't really think it was like a resounding everyone loves Biden sort of. But result. they don't hate him, which, you know, I think Tyson also said or is either Jesse Waters maybe on He's Fox. He's got like it was like, hey, people don't hate Biden the same way. Ratings. They don't love really, him. Really, really. They don't hate him. Yeah. I just the thing for me is I. I think if he had run in 2016, we would have had a totally different narrative going on. But the idea of him in 2024 going up there and saying, and I'm here now and I have four more years where I'm I'm going to be on the ball. I just don't see that happening. Yeah, well, I, who knows? I think <laughs> I think a lot of my Democratic friends, they would take a weekend at Bernie's Biden scenario where they just basically, you know, roll him out. Uh, and even if he's, you know, a cadaver, they'll, they'll get oh. behind him, which is obviously ideal scenario for a DeSantis candidacy, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think, like, DeSantis he versus Trump is... He won an election is, in his basement, essentially. Yeah. So, I don't know at this point. You know, we, we yeah. underestimate Biden at our own peril. <laughs> I, I think this is a good segue into our first interview. I, I got to sit down yesterday in studio with uh, former Congressman Carlos Corbello. He served in the U.S. House of Representatives, representing Florida's 26th congressional district uh, from 2015 to 2019. Prior to that election, he served on the Miami-Dade County School Board. He's a frequent contributor to MSNBC. Actually, right after I did our episode on Tuesday, I went home and I watched MSNBC. I saw him on Maddow. Uh, so he he embraces our spirit of dialogue across the aisle, and he's the co-host of Pulso y Pendulo, our Spanish-language podcast on Lost Debate. So let's get into it. Well, Carlos, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
What happened in Florida yesterday? Give us a rundown. Wow, what an outlier. I mean, uh, it was a purple wave all over the country, except for Florida, where there was actually a big, big red wave. And uh, what Ron DeSantis has done apparently is defy the political gravity of this election, where everything's so even, everyone in the country, so many close races, Republicans, very high expectations they did not meet. In Florida, Republicans exceeded expectations. DeSantis, who barely won four years ago, all of a sudden looks like the strongest Republican governor in the whole country, winning by almost 20 points. That's right, swing state Florida gave Ron DeSantis almost a 20-point victory, including an 11-point victory in a Democratic stronghold, or I guess former Democratic right. stronghold, Miami-Dade County. So quite the result in Florida. It's the uh, the big outlier, uh, really stands out. And swing congressionals, too, uh, yeah. went down. Now, how uh, much— uh, In fact, you know, bring up a, a, a point, because Ron DeSantis is going to try to, you know, um, make a lot of hay out of what happened in Florida— it's his map that might give Republicans a slim majority right. in the U.S. House of Representatives because he rejected the maps that the conservative Republican legislature put in front of him because he thought they weren't aggressive it enough. It was like incumbent protection maps, That's right? That's right. They were protecting his Republicans and not going on much offense. Help Republicans net even more seats, and that could be the difference in the balance of power in the House. Now, how much of this is DeSantis's appeal and how much of this is just the state changing to become more Republican? Because Rubio did extremely well, too. Like His margin was pretty high, too, as well, right? So I think two big factors. Number one, and I think a lot of people on the left will cringe when they hear this, but, and I say this in the most sensitive way possible, okay? The pandemic was a horrible experience for the country. Obviously, a lot of people died. A lot of people got sick. But when it comes to politics, pure political analysis, Ron DeSantis won the pandemic. A lot of people moved to Florida. A lot of people vacationed to Florida. Florida businesses were open. Most importantly, Florida schools were open and, right. and kids you know, did not suffer the setbacks that they did in other parts of the country. So that really gave them a huge boost. And of course, the people who moved to Florida because of his pandemic policies, Became obviously, we can yeah. assume that they all voted for him uh, in this last election. So that's number one. And number two, the cultivation, the investment, the focus on Florida's Hispanic community. Sure, DeSantis did great with Cuban-Americans. That was expected. That's not new. That happened in 2018 as well. Apparently, he did really well also with Puerto Ricans with Colombians, Venezuelans, Nicaraguans. I mean, we have you know, United Nations for Latin America in the state of Florida. We have every every single uh, group imaginable uh, represented, and it really does look like Republicans made major gains with all of those groups. Yeah, and we've talked about on this podcast before how Democrats often treat uh, Hispanics and the Latino community in general as this monolith where the immigration is the biggest issue and that there's one view on immigration. Give us a sense of the contours of the politics as you see it in Florida. Like who are the persuadables and who obviously moved more in the Republican camp this time than in previous elections? Yeah, well, first let me say you, you bring up an important point, I think, of perhaps Democrats taking the Hispanic community for granted, perhaps Democrats making very broad assumptions about the entire Hispanic community. Uh, and, you know, Democrats for a long time said uh, demography is destiny. What did that mean? That, oh, you know, as the Latino population keeps growing, which which it, it is still the fastest growing uh, 
group in the country that Democrats would automatically do better because most of these Latinos were going to automatically support the Democratic Party. Well, that's been challenged now. And uh, I think Democrats have been woken up to the fact that they actually have to go out and earn all of these votes. And they can't just do it by talking immigration. Sure, immigration is an important issue to a lot of Hispanics, but not to every Hispanic. And it's important to Hispanics in different ways. There are actually a lot of Hispanics out there who are staunchly opposed to illegal immigration, and they do not in any way approve of the status quo at the southwest border. So, uh, you know, that's become evident in the polling when DeSantis and I'll, I'll admit I was surprised when DeSantis did this, which I thought was a huge mistake. And I, I, I I'm against it. But when he uh, sent the migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard using Florida taxpayer dollars, a lot of people thought, well, this is, you know, Hispanics are going to are going to be angry about this. They're going to start turning on DeSantis. It didn't happen. It didn't happen because, number one, he's popular with them for other reasons. So I think some of them are willing to excuse that. But others actually have taken a hard line on immigration because they just think it's out of control. It's too much. Um, the, the economy. You know, most uh, immigrants who come to the United States do so because they want to advance economically. They want to be more prosperous. They want their kids to to do uh, better than they would in their countries of origin. And obviously inflation and all of the frustrations with with um, uh, the economy uh, really benefited Republicans in the state of Florida and probably in other parts of the country as well. But Robbie, I, I point to, and uh, this is a bit more abstract, but I really think that the way the two parties are talking to Hispanic voters and to the country more broadly, is helping Republicans with Hispanics. From the left, oftentimes, you hear about everything that's wrong with America. This country is unfair. Uh, there's too much inequality. Uh, there are too many disadvantaged people here. This country is racist. Now, I understand there's a lot of people in our country who um, can relate to that message, who have had very difficult experiences here, and I don't mean to minimize that in any way. The average Hispanic immigrant family cannot understand that rhetoric. Why? Because they feel very fortunate and blessed to live in this country because they came from countries where they were fleeing violence, oppression, political instability, far worse than the political instability that we experience here. So they hear that from the left and they say, we're not, you know, that that's not who we are. On the other hand, you have Republicans who granted uh, are, are perhaps overly optimistic about the country. So, well, I'll talk about how this is the greatest country in the world. Everyone has a fair shot here. Everyone can can uh, thrive as long as they you know make the effort. Uh, and we know that that's true in many cases, not true in some cases. But again, for the average Hispanic uh voter it's like yeah i mean i i came from a terrible place i was dirt poor now maybe i'm renting a home i have a car i have a job maybe two my kids uh, go to get a quality education you know for free uh it's, right. not, it's not such a bad deal right so i i really think democrats are missing hispanics and it'll be interesting to see as as uh, all of this evolves how democrats adopt or if they adopt messaging that is compatible with the average Hispanic voter, as opposed to the current messaging, which I think appeals a lot to white progressive, elitist white progressives, and uh, the African-American population. Well, final question, I can't resist. You have two Florida residents who are 
shaping up to <laughs> go head to head. Two very, very big figures with very big personalities. Some may say huge egos who are about to collide here. It, it, in all likelihood, going to be uh, going at it in the next year for the Republican nomination. Size this up for us. This is going to get ugly. Uh, these are perhaps the two biggest egos in the in U.S. politics right now. Well, that's a, uh, that's a tough challenge. I, I might not, agree with you, though. I'm not sure which one is bigger. <laughs> <laughs> it's very close. And uh, look, uh, I'll tell you this. I know there's a lot of people out there who, who don't like Ron DeSantis and who don't agree with his policies, uh, but there aren't very many Republicans, and we'll see if this changes now after this election, which, with the exception of Florida, has been disappointing for Republicans. There aren't too many Republicans willing to confront Donald Trump. Uh, there's Mitch McConnell, even though he does it indirectly. It's not like he's ever going to run against Trump. Uh, McConnell has survived. Many others have tried, and they haven't. There are a good number of Liz Cheney's out there. Ron DeSantis is not afraid. And uh, that just means that this clash is going to be very dramatic, very dynamic. It's going to be a little bit of a novella here for the uh, for the next few weeks. Yeah. I thought it would start immediately. There's a hurricane headed toward Florida that's going to postpone we'll politics give Trump there. an opportunity maybe to 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 wait out his announcement that he's planning. Exactly, exactly. Face so him. this is just this is going to become the biggest political story. Uh, once uh, we figure out who's who's going to be in charge of each chamber, uh, the DeSantis-Trump clash will be the biggest political story, and it will all be happening in Florida. And by the way, I don't know that uh, they're actually going to go ahead and do it, but there are other Floridians who Rick Scott. have had and might have uh, presidential ambitions. I'll give you three more just for your list because you know Florida can't get enough attention. So. Uh, Rick Scott, who is another guy who's extremely ambitious, him and Ron DeSantis don't like each other. Scott has kind of aligned himself with Trump now. Marco Rubio, who gets along with everyone. Yeah. He's, he's smart. He, he welcomes everyone. Yeah, what's crazy, uh, <laughs> once again, he had a great showing, but nobody's talking about it because DeSantis did a little bit better. Exactly. Yeah. And because everyone now anticipates DeSantis to run for president. And then there's a, a, a good friend of mine, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez, who has been making a People name for him. himself. I, I don't know a lot about him, but I'm coming down to Miami in a couple of weeks. I, I would love to you just should see get him together in with him. He's, yeah. uh, he's an interesting figure trying to, you know, just a, a different message. Um, but anyway, yeah, I'm sorry, Florida, you're going to have to keep talking Florida. That's just how it is. It's fine. You know, as, as somebody who comes from progressive politics, I'm taking out the popcorn, ready to watch the DeSantis Trump showdown. I'm glad I was expecting today to be all about Democratic infighting, all the pre-written pieces about the future of the Democratic <laughs> Party. It is fascinating to see this about face. I think most people are shocked by this. I would say I, I this is the most shocked I've been by a result in a long time. The polls don't tend to underrepresent Democratic performance. This is the first time right. I can remember that. Obviously, That's right. Florida was the exception, so it must be really weird for you, because you know where we're the New York too. Actually, it was a place where Democrats underperformed. So New York and, and Florida are the outliers here. So really amazing. We're really grateful that you've joined this network. Really awesome. We're a huge fan of, the, of your show. For people who are listening, uh, if you speak Spanish or you have people in your life. 
who speak Spanish, please direct them to the Pulso y Pendulo podcast. Wherever we'd you love to have podcast. you, we'd love to have you. And if you want to learn Spanish, we, we'll, that's we'll my try big to, thing. We'll this try year, to speak more slowly, so you know. <laughs> I actually I do one. I pick up. I try to pick up one new skill every year, and this coming year is going to be Spanish. So it'll Let's be a while it. before we're, I can. We're going to have you as a guest, and but you're going to have to answer the questions in Spanish. Oh my God, it's going to be the worst <laughs> listening experience for anybody out there. Uh, all right, well, thank you really thank very you, much. Uh, it was cool to see you on Mad Owl last night. Um, and like, I feel like you're going to be in high demand because everybody's going to want an, an explanation for Florida and the Democratic struggles with Hispanic votes. That's right, that's right. All right, I had a bipartisan day yesterday in the office. I also got a chance to call my friend Tara McGowan, who's a political strategist and journalist. In 2016, she ran digital advertising for the Democratic Super PAC Priorities US say, uh, which is the primary super PAC that was supporting Hillary Clinton. In 2020, she started Acronym, one of the major coordinators and producers of digital media campaigns for Democrats. And today she runs a, a company and publisher called Good Information Incorporated, which is a collection of local news organizations with a progressive bent. Tara talks all about the changing media landscape and, and why she thinks Democrats won and what they need to do in the future. Give me something counterintuitive here. Like, what what are some of your explanations as to what happened? I, I would imagine you would share the consensus that Dobbs played a huge part. Uh, what else did you see out there, or did you even see ahead of time that help can help us understand what happened last night? Yeah, uh, look, the the media got this election wrong. Um, there there was not a red wave. There's obviously still a lot of races that need to be decided and. Um, uh, votes that need to be counted still, but overall the red wave did not appear. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the media also got it wrong about, um, what issue was motivating voters in this election, because I believe that abortion was the number one issue that drove turnout, historic turnout, unprecedented turnout among women and especially young people across the country. Um, we saw uh, 18 to 29 year olds break records in almost every single state when it came to new registrations and turnout. Um, and they weren't voting on inflation by and large. Um, so it, it really, I really, really hope that one of the lessons out of this uh, cycle is that abortion is a crucial issue for voters that mobilizes them to the polls and that. Democrats need to deliver on uh, codifying Roe if, if and when they they have the opportunity. And if not, it is going to be um, and should be a huge issue in the 2024 election. Enthusiasm internet. And so helping us with the young young people part first, give us a little bit more color to that data. Like, I know that there's not, we don't have full data yet. I know yeah. a lot of times what we're working with is exit polling. But yeah, give us a little bit more. Like, what do we know about whether Gen Z turned out in yeah. large number and and what they were animated by? Sure. So the numbers that I was um, really, really excited about um, leading up to yesterday were the early vote numbers. Um, young people broke records um, in early vote alone um, compared to past midterms. So I'll just run through some of these numbers I have in front of me. Uh, in Pennsylvania, for instance, the early youth vote was 318% higher than it was in 2018. Um, the early woman vote was 725% higher than it was compared to 2018. In Michigan, 
young people voted early, 207% higher compared to 2018. In Arizona, it was 115% higher than early turnout by young people in 2018. Um, Wisconsin, it was 360% higher than in 2018. Um, these are massive, massive shifts and increases um, in young people turning out. And, you know, the conventional wisdom about young voters is that they are flaky and that conventional wisdom needs to be put to rest because since 2018, young people have broken their own voter turnout records every single cycle. Um, and I think that's only going to, that trend is only going to continue. Um, and the other thing I'd say, and I can't take credit for this because my friend Jesse texted me this this morning, but Gen Z is only halfway through voting age. We wow. are in 2024, we are going to have millions more Gen Z voters um, registering and voting. And I really do believe that they are going to shift the entire electorate and what's possible in this country. And you are a, uh, you know, you are second to none on, on, in the Democratic Party in terms of uh, thinking about the digital landscape and, and how it's changing and trying to push the Democratic Party to spend more money outside of traditional TV advertising. Our audience includes people who are Republicans, Democrats, and in between. Give us a sense of the changing media landscape as you see it right now. This is, there was record spending uh, in this race for a midterm. What, what was different about the way money was spent? And from your perspective, thinking about the left and the right, where was money well spent in terms of moving the needle from where you understand and where was money wasted? Sure. So, um, unfortunately I don't think that Democrats learned as many lessons as they've needed to in terms of how they allocate their resources. Um, so for your audience who, who doesn't know me, I run um, a, a left-leaning news organization called Career Newsroom. Um, we reach intentionally less politically engaged Americans, passive news consumers who get their information primarily on social media and through email, and we reach them with local, factual, and interesting news um, that is delivered to them on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok in native formats. Um, that is uh, how you need to reach um, increasingly the population because they don't read long articles. They're not watching TV. Um, they're, they're listening to radio less and less. And unfortunately, the vast amount of spending, you mentioned it, record spending in a midterm, um, was still spent on television ads. And so we live in a very environment where media consumption habits have changed dramatically, but not over the past two years, over the past 15 years, you know, political consultants and the operatives and strategists have not evolved spending on digital, but it still pales in comparison to television ads. And they have not, more importantly, invested in building their own media infrastructure and their own trusted audiences, their own relationship with audiences that isn't transactional in one way, the one the way that advertising is. I know that's also what you are doing at Lost Debate. It's what we're doing at Courier. We're trying to build media infrastructure that is, is transparent and values-driven, um, but also that meets people where they are and how they get information today. And unfortunately, um, we're, we're not seeing the investment in, in these models that we are seeing in the old tactics um, and spending on advertising. Well, one thing I'm always fascinated by is the Daily Wire, you know, something you and I have talked about mm -hmm. out, uh, offline. And, 
and knowing that we're a C3, and so we have to kind of analyze this from a kind of nonpartisan lens, maybe just even just saying, almost admiring what they do in terms of how effective it is. I, I read your newsletter every week, and often they're spending, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on Meta, sometimes at half a million dollars on the yeah. Meta platform and advertising. Can you explain to me what is going on here? Are they, is, but this is like political advertising, but they're supposed to be a media company. How does that work? They, so actually, the, a lot of their advertising on Meta is to market their films and different content products as opposed to necessarily boosting their narratives or their, you know, their content specifically. Um, so it's actually interesting. It's, it's somewhat traditional in certain ways that they're actually spending a lot of money uh, to promote their films. But that's an important thing to note, too, because what, what Daily Wire is doing that is really interesting, and certainly we're not seeing anything like it on the left, Left, um, yet, at least in this country, is that they're investing heavily in cultural media and cultural communications. Um, they announced last year that they're investing tens of millions of dollars into um, uh, children's programming and content um, and, and, and young adult content. Um, they are really uh, investing in infusing their ideology, their values, and frankly, their political agenda um, uh, into into cultural content that that really, you know, builds community and trust with their audiences. And um, that can't be understated how valuable and how, frankly, <laughs> dangerous, in my opinion, um, uh, to to our politics and society uh, that those efforts could be. And so you are uh, kind of a thought leader within the left. I think you there, there's a lot of different ways that this could have gone in terms of the results and, and what the conversation would be like today. Is are is there a part of you that feels like, a, you know, obviously I think the results were what you largely what you wanted today, but in an alternate universe, there's this soul searching that happens after. Uh, Democrats lose, which would give people like you an opportunity to say to the infrastructure, hey, here's how you change. Because you've mentioned in this interview that there there's a little bit of stagnation and ossification on the left. Are you a little bit worried that with these results, it's going to be harder to push the infrastructure to change? It's a, it's a great question, Robbie. So I, I, I and I, I have all, never thought of myself really as a, as a partisan person or a party person. In fact, I've built most of my career in in the, in progressive politics, pushing the Democratic Party um, to get smarter and talk to more people and engage more people. And it's it's why I ultimately started Courier is because I I didn't believe the party or the progressive movement was building the infrastructure needed to um, build a more diverse and representative uh, coalition and democracy. Um, and so I. I I think it's a really interesting question because look, we didn't, this was not a, this was not a blue tsunami either, right? <laughs> the red tsunami didn't come, but it wasn't a blue tsunami. Um, it was a bit of a mixed bag. It, it looks like Democrats um, could still lose the house. Um, uh, thankfully, not certainly by uh, the amount of seats that the media was predicting, but, but absolutely what the, it would be a travesty if, Democrats um, and and Democratic Party leaders and operatives walked away from this and said, "Oh, we did everything right." Um, they didn't. They certainly didn't. And so, I do believe that those conversations will be had, need to be had. There needs to be a lot of self reflection, and 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 frankly, um, you know, some of it is 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 just going to happen on its own because we are going to go through a generational shift in party leadership. 
Um, it's it's happening one way or another, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that also changes how campaigns are run, um, how candidates and elected officials communicate um, with the electorate and, and shift the way that they think about resource allocation. I do think that that's all coming. It's been slow to come. Um, but my hope that is that there will be a lot of opportunity out in, in the postmortems and the debriefs of the midterms for us to really explore those questions and talk about how we can build real infrastructure, um, not even on the left, but on the uh, in the pro-democracy movement, frankly, because that's what I'm most concerned about is, is, is preventing um, fascist actors from taking control of our government. And I think we may good progress towards that end um, yesterday, but there's much work to do. The fight isn't over. And I, and I do believe that that will motivate people to really think about how we can get smarter and not leave as many seats on the table, frankly, because I think if we, we'd gotten smarter before this race um, and the media hadn't taken the bait from the right, I, I think that Democrats actually could have had a much, much better night even than they did. Well, last question for you. What, what are, what's one campaign, uh, in the Democratic Party and one in the Republican Party, that from your perspective, strictly tactically, because obviously you know you're yeah. from a from a values and and politics perspective is not much on the right. I'm sure you, you jive with, but strictly tactically, what are two campaigns you came away from the cycle and say these are the ones? If I was an operative, a strategist, I'd be looking to to learn from. Yeah, sure. I, I feel like this is a little bit um, uh, tired at this point and obvious, but. Uh, John Fetterman ran an unbelievable campaign. Um, they uh, prioritized reaching young people and being on social media and frankly, um, uh, under embraced their understanding of the attention economy that we live in to really drive drumbeat narratives and keep it fun and lighthearted and interesting while informing voters of the contrast between him and his opponent, Dr. Oz, the fact that Dr. Oz didn't wasn't from Pennsylvania, didn't live in Pennsylvania. Um, and, and also when they had some really, 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 really tough circumstances, both in terms of the attacks launched on them that were inaccurate on crime, but then of course, um, Fetterman's stroke and, and, and showing up because he believed it was the right thing to do. And I agreed on that debate stage um, when he's still healing and vulnerable and yet leaning into um, leaning into transparency and, and, and frankly, empathy um, and channeling the empathy of voters. I just think it was, I think it was a brilliant campaign and I'm so glad that, um, that, that it, 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 it came out the way that it did and that he's going to be the next Senator from Pennsylvania. Um, when it comes to uh, the right <laughs> um, tactically, um, I think it, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I'm actually surprised. I thought I would have said yesterday that uh, Carrie Lake's campaign um, has been run really smartly. She is obviously a very, very seasoned TV local news anchor. She is uh, camera ready at all times. She's incredibly polished. She's very compelling and charismatic. And yet I do think, you know, on the face of it, it was a smartly run campaign in the way that she uh, never let Katie Hobbs forget that she wouldn't get on a debate stage with her, I thought was effective um, generally. And so uh, that, that, that's the one I would point to, but I hope it wasn't as effective as I maybe thought that it was. And she spent a lot, she spent most of her money in non-traditional media, right? Not on, not on TV and stuff like that, right? From what we understand. That's right. Yeah. And the other thing I think that she did was smart is that she very elegantly, if you can call it that, 
um, balanced undermining the media and calling them fake news media and also engaging with them and doing the interviews to increase her exposure and attack Katie Hobbs. And so, um, you know, we didn't see that with uh, Doug Mastroianni in Pennsylvania, right? He never did one single interview, I don't think, with a reporter, a uh, national or state reporter. And and so I think that that was uh, very smart tactically on uh, the, the late campaign side well uh tara thank you for joining us this was uh super helpful and you know thank you for uh for for jumping on uh the lost debate and uh safe travels out there i think you've been flying today so uh, <laughs> hopefully you're staying safe out there uh, always a pleasure thanks for having me robbie I'll all right thanks tara bye well, it's been a lot of election talk today. I'm sure we'll have some updates on Tuesday, but we'll also go back to our regular coverage of the rest of the very important events unfolding in the world. But that's it for today. We'll see you Tuesday. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on YouTube. And have a great day. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, studio support and video editing by Moyo Adeolu, editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Monica Espedia. 